Okay, let's move on to the, the main event. Obviously, it is about Sir Frank Whittle tonight, and I'm sure that you all know who Sir Frank Whittle is, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't be there. So I'm going to hand straight over to Frank's son, Ian Whittle. Thank you very much, Ian Whittle. Testing. <laughs> One. Yep. Working. Okay. Good evening, everybody. I'm delighted to be here. Had a bit of a rush, not just because of traffic jams, but we went to Yeovilton today, Royal Naval Air Station Yeovilton, for the commemorative event for Captain Eric Brown, Winkle Brown, as most people seem to like to call him. Winkle. I never called him that because he didn't like it really, but Eric was a good friend and uh, it was a wonderful event at Yeovilton and I know you'd all be pleased to know today they had a good event with a good air show and lots and lots of people and lots and lots of aeroplanes, many of which of course Eric had flown himself in his fantastic career. I was privileged in many ways because I flew um, an ex-Navy Admiral, test pilot to the event with Hillary, my wife, and Christopher Toffer, Christopher Oliver, who many of you know because uh, he's so often here at Brooklands and runs the Royal Aeronautical Society branch here. All right, now we're largely going to be talking about jet propulsion this evening, and of course, you know, Chinese invented jet propulsion, didn't they? You know, they invented most things. Well, they didn't invent jet propulsion because it's a natural phenomenon, uh, so on and so forth, but the, the Chinese were probably the first people to make practical use out of this facility. And it all started, you know, with a little farmer tending his bonfire by his rice paddy when a very flatulent duck flew too low over his bonfire and his backside caught fire and he went shooting off at a great rate of knots. And Confucius, Confucius, he say, farting duck fly faster. <laughs> so, anyway, um, in this picture here, you've got a piston engine propeller driven airplane known as the Siskin. It was at one time a frontline fighter for the Royal Air Force. On the right, you've got a, uh, whatever it is, I think it's an F-22, but I'm not quite sure. Uh, but it's a very fast aeroplane, and that's what we have today. Not counting, of course, well, I, when I did this slide, there weren't many pictures of the F-35 um, around, which we should be getting soon. But having seen the F-35 at uh, Farnborough Air Show a few days ago, I wasn't actually terribly impressed. <laughs> the Harrier seemed to be at least as good. Anyway, and the, the, of course the F-35 cost, what, more than a hundred million dollars. Now, 2016 is of course the anniversary of some very unhappy happenings in France, of course, the Somme and so on. This aeroplane, it's the 75th anniversary of the flight first flight of this particular airplane that I'm going to tell you about. 
but it's also the 100th anniversary of a strange event when a little boy called Frank Whittle nearly got decapitated by an aeroplane, obviously not this one, but by a little biplane that got into trouble over Coventry and then he got in the way when it took off again. I'm going to tell you about that in a moment. But that happened a hundred years ago as well. But this aircraft first left the ground for a proper flight. It left the ground earlier, but for its real flying, it started its first flight tests on the 15th of April, 1941. May, 15th of May, I beg your pardon. 15th of May, 1941. So it's the 75th anniversary, as near as damn of the first flight of the first British aeroplane. Now mark my words, this aeroplane, designed by George Carter of the Gloucester Aviation Company, was the world's first viable, practical turbojet aeroplane to fly, powered by a pilot-friendly engine, with lots of time to go on it before it needed to be given an overhaul. The engine in this aeroplane had been given 25 hours of rigorous bench testing under the supervision of the Air Ministry or authorities before they would permit it to be put into the aeroplane and flight tested. So good was it at the end of the 25 hour testing that they said, you can fly this aeroplane for 10 hours before we consider it should be wise to have a look at it and make sure it's okay. So, it was a great success. The engine for the takeoff was restricted at thrust to 860 pounds. The pilot only had to apply certain engine speed to produce that thrust, and the aeroplane flew perfectly satisfactorily at that level of thrust. It, in fact, the engine itself, was rated at 1,240 pounds of thrust. But for the first flight, they only used 860 pounds because that kept the temperature of the turbine nice and low and everybody was happy with it. You go to the Science Museum that has an appalling exhibit with respect to the early development of the turbojet, and they simply say that this aeroplane was powered by the Whittle engine, the W1, that had a thrust of 860 pounds. You would think, would you not, that the publicly funded Science Museum would try and get their exhibits right. And people like me have said to them, look, please change that, it's a lot of rubbish. Oh dear, they say, yes, well, you know, that's the thrust it had when it first took off. Yes, but, 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 oh yes, yes, but anyway, they won't change it, so we're stuck with it. Now, when it first flew, of course, it was quite an important event, at least it seemed to be by the people closely concerned, and so they asked the Air Ministry, would they send up a, photography, a photographer to take a, a, a picture of it, uh, take a movie or something like that? And they said, oh, no, no, there's no cause for that kind of thing, so they didn't bother to send anybody to take a photograph of the first flight. Well, I'll just get my gizmo going here, if I can. It, it's one of the power jets with the people who are responsible for this engine, 
and one of their employees illegally, because it was a secret project at the time, took a movie. And I see if I can run it for you. It's a very poor quality, but um, it's the only thing we have of the first flight of this very important little aeroplane. Here he goes on his takeoff run. About 600 yards, nose up, and he's airborne. So that was the aeroplane getting airborne for the very first time with the Whittle engine. Now, I'm therefore going to start talking to you about Frank Whittle himself. He was born in 1907 and was the first-born child of a couple, Moses and Sarah Whittle. Moses had left school when he was 11. He was born about 1882. He left school in about 1893, something like that, give or take a year or two, and worked in the cotton mills in Bolton as a grease monkey, that is, they employed little, very small children to creep about amongst the moving machinery and keep them lubricated, and they called them grease monkeys. So Moses Whittle started off life in that way, closely, too closely associated with machinery. And of course, he naturally learned a thing or two, and eventually became a very, um, skillful mechanic and a self-taught engineer. At the beginning of the 20th century, he moved from Bolton down to Coventry to seek his fortune. He worked, I think it was in a bicycle manufacturing establishment, and eventually became foreman. And later on in life, he even prospered enough to run his own little business. Now, he and Sarah had their first child in 1907, and they christened him Frank. Not Francis, Frank. They didn't give him any other name, so he's F.W. When he was four and a half on Christmas Day, 1911, his father bought him a, a toy airplane made of tin, with a clockwork motor and a propeller. And if it was suspended by a piece of string from the gas mantle, in the middle of the ceiling, it flew around in a circle. And to all you sophisticated ladies and gentlemen, such a toy seems really rather uninteresting. But in those days, after all, it was only a very few years since Blériot had crossed the channel in his monoplane and this little toy was supposed to look like Blériot's aeroplane. Frank Whittle, this little boy, was very interested in this aeroplane that went round in circles, and his father, Moses, explained to him how the propeller worked. He showed him, look, he said, put your hand behind the aeroplane and feel the, the blast of air from the propeller. It's like a fan. Propeller pushes air backwards in a sort of invisible column, and the aeroplane moves forwards as a consequence. 
And he said ships move in the same way. The propeller underneath the water is revolving and it pushes a column of water backwards. The ship moves forwards. How fascinating. Old hat to people like you, but to this little boy, very interesting. Now, how much he understood, of course, he didn't really remember. He did remember the toy, and he remembered his enthusiasm, and he did admit that this toy may have been the first seed of his enthusiasm for things aeronautical. The other child sitting on the floor is his brother, and I'm not sure whether it's my Uncle Arthur or my Uncle Albert. But anyway, I know that the boy standing up there was my father. Now, something else happened to him. He grew up, when he was 11, he, was, uh, he got a scholarship from, from a primary school. He then went on to, uh, sorry, no, he's still at the primary school when this event happens. He's uh, 1911, he's nine. And uh, an aeroplane came over the chimney pots very low, and they, the children coming out of school realized that it was in trouble. And it landed on the local common. And they all rushed along and had a look. And they even got right up to the aeroplane and ran their sticky, inky fingers over the fabric and thought how wonderful and exciting this was. They could smell the smell of burnt castor oil and see the pilot in his leather finery, his helmet, goggles, gauntlets, and long leather coat. And this was fantastic. But a policeman came along and shooed them all away, and some grown-ups turned up as well and spoiled it all. And so eventually, whatever was wrong was put right. Nobody can remember what was wrong, why the aeroplane did a forced landing on the local common, but it did. And this little boy, Frank Whittle, and he was very small for his age, had strayed across the grass. And when the aeroplane went to take off, he was in the way. And it's probable, certain I would say, that the, air, the pilot of the aeroplane didn't see this diminutive child in the grass ahead of him. And he took off just in time. The little boy crouched and the wash from the propeller blew his school cap off his head into a gorse bush. And he picked himself up and he watched the aeroplane climb away and he thought, I want to be a pilot. I want to be a pilot. And so that is in fact what happened. He was very keen on aeronautics from that moment onwards. But he got a scholarship to Leamington College when he was a little older. When he this was nine, when this happened, when he was 11, he gets this scholarship and he goes to Leamington College. So he gets a sort of leg up socially, as it were. And whilst he was there, he haunted the public library, didn't play football or cricket, he just wanted to study aeronautics. Now, the boy is a budding mathematical genius, I suppose. He was certainly an absolute natural at mathematics, had a good memory. And uh, so when he was reading all these books, he was soaking up a lot of knowledge. And the librarian, who was a very nice lady, she sort of favored him and got in books that he would enjoy. But he also chanced upon a book in the library by a chap called Stadola, who was a Swiss steam turbine engineer. And he studied the dynamics of the axial steam turbine. 
which of course was going to stand him in good stead one day in the future. His father, in the meantime, had bought a small business and was making piston rings and valves. And the valves, the, the exhaust valves that he was uh, shaping, were of course made of the high temperature alloys of the day, and he would discuss the nature of these alloys with his son, why they had to be so special to withstand such cruel temperatures and corrosive effects of the gas of the internal combustion reciprocating engine. So he becomes familiar with high temperature alloys, as was, and with the dynamics of the axial turbine. Little did he know, of course, as a young schoolboy, that one day this information would be so useful to him. He wanted to get near aeroplanes, and what better way than to join the Royal Air Force? So, in 1923, he was accepted as an apprentice. By then, he'd just turned 16. He tried when he was 15. He passed the examination with flying colours. But when they gave him a medical examination, they found that for his age, then 15 and a half, or whatever, that he was too small. They said, sorry, you can't join the Royal Air Force. You are actually too small. Too short, chest measurements too small, so he was sent away. Well, on his way away, his tail between his legs, feeling very down, almost in tears, I suspect, a military policeman took pity on him. What's the matter, old chap? Oh, I've just failed because I'm too small. Oh dear, this is terrible. He said, come and see my friend, physical training instructor. Took him to see his friend who was lying on his bunk at the time, having a little afternoon kip. And he said, I've got this little fellow here. He said, they just rejected him because they say he's too small. I mean, he's well proportioned. What's the matter? And this fellow got off his bunk and he said, well, I don't know. He said, but I'll show him some exercises to do and I'll write out a diet sheet for him. So Frank Whittle gets home and he shows his mum, my grandma, his diet and the exercises he must do. So he got on with the exercises. For the next six months, he concentrated on his diet and his exercises. He put on three inches in six months. Mostly natural growth, of course. But the, the diet and the exercises no doubt helped. And now he knew he was tall enough to get through the medical. So he reapplied. Well, he went back and they said, yes, well, you can come along. And, and they said, oh, You've applied before. You failed on medical grounds. Once failed on medical grounds, you cannot join the Royal Air Force. There is no retake of somebody who's failed on medical grounds. Sorry, bye. So he had left feeling very fed up and knew that the only thing he could do if he was going to get around this problem was to reapply from start, take the examination, and go along to the medical exam as if he'd never been there before. And this is what he did, passed the exam, they invited him to go for a medical. Of course, computers didn't exist in those days, so, you know, nobody noticed that he'd been there before. And he passed his medical, joins the Royal Air Force, and becomes an apprentice. The picture up on the screen there simply shows him, the little one on the left, 
standing by an aeroplane that he and the other guy had built together from scratch. The only thing they brought in was the rubber tyres for the wheels and the spark plug for the engine. But they built the engine, built the airframe, and he got involved with a whole lot of other model aircraft. And anyway, he drew attention to himself because of his abilities at mathematics and so on, and so he did quite well. But he passed out number six amongst the boys um, graduating from the apprentice school. Now, Lord Trenchard, who used to run the Royal Air Force in those days, had dictated that the top five boys from the apprentice school should be offered a place at Royal Air Force College Cranwell and be allowed to learn to become pilots and to become commissioned officers. Frank Whittle has just missed the boat. However, one of the five young fellows failed his medical to become a pilot. He was found to be colorblind. So he was rejected. Ah, so the door creaked open a little bit and Frank Whittle slipped through. He was supported, supported by his commanding officer and was offered a place at Royal Air Force College Cranwell where he went and became an officer cadet and of course, as part of the, the business, was taught to fly. So his ambition is satisfied. He now becomes a pilot, oh, an officer cadet and a pilot. There he is, very proud of himself, I can tell you. Young warrior, working class lad in those days to enter this uh, environment of ex-public school boys and so on was quite a big leg up socially. I asked him once, I said, Dad, did you get a hard time at Cranwell? Because I knew jolly well that juniors at Cranwell were kicked around considerably. He said, oh, no more than anybody else. I said, but you were small and you were working class. He said, oh, that didn't seem to make any difference. I said, I got kicked around, he said, but that was just me amongst a whole lot of other people. Tough it was, tough. Anyway, there you go. He had to write his thesis during his final term at Cranwell in 1928. He chose the subject future developments in aircraft design because he was very interested in whatever the alternatives were, including, including the farting duck, <laughs> whatever alternatives there were for aeroplane propulsion. This is the way he looked just in 1929 after he'd left Cranwell. That thesis that he wrote, by the way, he proved by calculation that the turbine, of which, as I told you, he had some knowledge, but he worked out that the gas turbine had the potential for aeropropulsion, could be perhaps used in place of the piston engine. Because if you could use the gas turbine, altitude would not be a problem anymore. A long time before Frank Whittle had come on scene, it had been realized that the gas turbine would function just about as well at sea level as it would on top of Mount Everest. So it was a good candidate for aeropropulsion, and Whittle had proven, as, a, as a, an officer cadet, that this was a fact. And so he worked 
on the gas turbine after he left Cranwell and served a tour on a fighter squadron flying that airplane I showed you at the beginning, the Siskin. The Siskin had a top speed of about 160 miles an hour, as near as Dammit, in level flight. But he was dreaming of aircraft flying much faster than that. He was thinking of 500 miles an hour at 45,000 feet or whatever. And he knew that the gas turbine was the only means by which this could ever happen. But all his calculations showed that the gas turbine, if it were to drive the aeroplane propeller and compete with the piston engine, would have to have a level of component efficiency that seemed too high to be achievable. If it was achieved, the darn thing was too big, too heavy, too fuel greedy. The gas turbine was a headache if it was to drive the aeroplane propeller. And then the penny dropped and he realized jet propulsion. Now, he was not the first person to think that the gas turbine might be used as a jet engine because, as a matter of fact, in the very early 1920s, late 1919, 1920, the piston engine had come under scrutiny as a possible alternative use as a jet engine. Hugo Junkers in Germany was absolutely convinced that the piston engine could be created as a jet engine. You'd have to have free pistons so that they didn't have to turn a crankshaft anymore. They would be blinding up and down in their pistons and you could take the energy, throw it out the exhaust, and there you have jet propulsion. So he was very keen on this, but a Frenchman called Maxime Guillaume said, I think the gas turbine would be a better candidate if you were going to use exhaust for propulsion. And so Maxime Guillaume suggested the gas turbine as a jet engine. But that's really as far as he got. He did a pretty picture of what he thought it might look like. But he was unable to do all the necessary calculations to prove the viability of his idea. Frank Whittle did all the necessary calculations, the aerothermodynamic calculations, the thermal cycle of the gas turbine, and showed he worked out the scantlings of an engine wherein he would have two-stage centrifugal compressor, that's the pieces there on the left there, and a series of combustion chambers around the rotor, and a two-stage Curtis turbine. He calculated that the turbine would take a certain amount of horsepower to drive the compressor. That if you could burn 168 imperial gallons of fuel an hour, you would derive thrust, jet thrust, from this machine, which would be directed down a jet pipe, so you get high mass flow exhaust providing propulsion. His calculations, and that's what his whole thing was based on mathematics, his calculations were valid. There were some uh, uh, 
areas where he had to make assumptions, he reckoned he could get two to one compression ratio from each compressor, a four to one compression ratio into his combustion chambers. And therefore, if you pushed the amount of fuel I just mentioned into the combustion chambers and was burning it, the expansion he calculated would be X, Y, Z through that Curtis turbine, two-stage axial turbine, and that there would be a thrust, he calculated, of about 1,000 pounds. He also calculated, working out the scantlings of his engine, that it would weigh just a little less than 1,000 pounds. So it looked very promising, and he was very excited about it. And he showed his idea to his commanding officer, Group Captain Baldwin, and Baldwin said, wow, this is amazing. He said, but unfortunately, I can't follow your calculations. He said, look, the best thing is you'd better have, you better go and um, we'll have an appointment made for you. Go and see the Air Ministry, the engine division there, and show them your idea. You see, if this thing works, it has strategic value, obviously. And anything that has strategic value is kept secret, as I'm sure you all appreciate. So off he goes to the Air Ministry. He is five foot seven inches tall at 22 years of age. Not very impressive to see. Good looking, yes. Nice in proportion, yes. But small, working class, and so on. He goes and sees the air ministry. He's met by a man called Tweedy. Mr. Tweedy said, this is a gas turbine. He said, in here, we are all piston engine experts. We don't know really anything about gas turbines. You had better go to the Royal Aircraft Establishment where there is a scientist by the name of Arnold Griffith. You go and you'll show your scheme to him and we'll use him as consultant. He will tell us if your ideas are good, if they, if they have merit, and if they should be further researched. Now, Arnold Griffith, he played a hugely negative part in this story that I'm telling you. Arnold had written a report to the Air, for the Air Ministry in 1926, wherein he said, I think we should study the gas turbine. He said, we have now got aerodynamic characteristics which we understand, which we could apply to the axial, axial compressor, and I think we should be looking into gas turbines for aero propulsion. The Air Ministry, of course, thought Griffiths was a pretty smart character, and they said, yes, all right, right, so we will fund you. So he began research into the axial compressor in 1927, when Frank Whittle was about halfway through his course at Cranwell. Whittle, of course, knew nothing about what was going on at the RAE, because what went on there was secret, and he certainly had never heard of Arnold Griffith. By 1929, October 1929, when Frank Whittle proposes the turbojet, Arnold had got so far as designing what he thought would one day be the world's first turboprop engine, the world's first gas turbine aero engine to drive the aeroplane propeller. 
He hadn't thought of jet propulsion. His idea was incredibly complicated. It had a 14-stage axial compressor rotating within 14 stages of turbines with contra-rotation and contra-flow contra -flow from combustion. It was impossibly complicated and was doomed never to work. But Griffith had high hopes. And then into his office comes this little RAF officer, very young, very immature, and shows him all this, this diagram and all the calculations that went with it. What did Graf Griffith think, I wonder? Nobody really knows. He used to keep things to himself, rather. What we do know is that he told the Air Ministry that the idea had no merit and was not worthy of any research. He said, Whittle, you've made a mistake in your calculations. He said, your assumptions with respect to compression from your compressor are too high, too optimistic. The temperature, he said, at the turbine, 800 Kelvin or 523 centigrade, is too high the speed of rotation, there are no materials that could withstand so much stress. And so he told the Air Ministry, forget it. The Air Ministry rejected the idea, sent it back to Frank Whittle at Central Flying School, where he was at the time, learning to become a flying instructor, and they wrote him a letter, which actually indicated, they said in the letter, worse to the effect, we've already thought of this, and a lot of hard work has gone into it, and so our criticisms of your scheme still hold good. He, back at Central Flying School, a busy RAF officer, accepted the letter and thought to himself, oh, well, somebody's obviously already thought of the turbojet. Hey-ho. But he had a friend at Central Flying School. I've jumped ahead of myself here a bit. I'm sorry. Um, but I'm going to show you this guy here on the left. His name was Pat Johnson. Johnson was a, a, a very good pilot. He was the Royal Air Force's first instrument pilot. Pat had been a patent, engineer, a patent agent as a civilian. And he said to Frank Whittle, hey, you, your idea is just fantastic. You must patent it to secure the intellectual property. So he helped this young officer with the business of applying for a patent. I want to just, before I go on anymore, go back to this, because if any of you thought that this looked a bit useless, we know the Air Ministry thought it was a bit useless, or were led to believe it was, have a look at that. If any of you know what it is, and I suspect some of you do, well, it's a Dart, Rolls-Royce Dart engine, and if you look, you see it's got two-stage centrifugal compressor, combustion chambers around the rotor, and in this case, three-stage turbine. Three stages because this is a turboprop. But I think you'll agree with me that the similarity between the design of this, which was designed uh, after the end of the Second World War, very similar to this. I know this is Frank Whittle's diagram, and it's not terribly professional, but it's, the principle is there. And the main thing is that the calculations were there 
to prove it. Now, he had made a mistake in his calculations, and when he was back at Central Flying School, he corrected the mistake, which then altered all the rest of the calculations, so he had to go through them all, and lo and behold, he found another mistake, and he was quite mortified, but he put that right, and the end result was at least as good as he thought it was in the first place, which just simply cemented his conviction that he was on the right track. And, of course, Pat Johnson gets him to patent the turbojet. So, the patent application was accepted by the patent office, slightly to their surprise, because, after all, the Air Ministry had indicated that the turbojet had already been thought of, but it was accepted by the patent office, which rather indicated that there was something amiss somewhere. Perhaps nobody had thought of the turbojet. After all, certainly Arnold Griffith hadn't. But the Air Ministry continued to remain disinterested. He had to ask them for permission to take out a patent. And they said, yes, if you want to do that, you may do so. But you must do so with money from your own pocket. Public funds will not be made available for you to patent your jet engine idea. It so happens that in 1930, at the time that this patent application went in, the Air Ministry, because Arnold Griffiths was making no progress, or very little progress, with his axial flow compressor investigations, they withdrew funding from him, and from the RAE, for those investigations. So all gas turbine research at the RAE stopped in 1930. The turbojet patent is now going through, and in 1931 it was issued. But what's happening? Nothing. We're doing nothing in this country to develop a turbojet. The turbojet patent, of course, was available in the UK, uh, Sweden, France, Germany, United States, USSR, Russia. Who is now going to develop a turbojet? British? No, Frank Whittle can't do it. He's busy. He's a, he's a pilot in the RAF. He can't do it. Well, who is going to do it? Well, actually, the Swedes were the first to get off their butts and start having a look at the idea in 1933 under a man called Alf Lisholm at the Milo Steam Turbine Company. But it's Germany where the idea really took hold. Now, between 1930 and the end of 1933, Frank Whittle realized that his jet engine was only efficient at very high speeds and very high altitudes. And he knew that he needed to figure out a way of making the jet engine uh, efficient and practical for lower speeds and lower altitudes. And he had the idea of the high bypass engine that we all call the turbofan today. And the picture you're looking at there is a Rolls-Royce Trent 1000, which is a pretty up-to-date form of turbofan, I know. But that big thing on the left is the fan. And that's driven by the big turbines at the back end. And that fan provides about 85% of the thrust. Behind the fan, you can see these things here and here. They are 
axial compressors, which is the way gas turbine jet engines are these days. They use the axial compressor. It took a hell of a long time to iron out the problems with the axial compressor, as we shall see. At the back, those are the axial turbines. The first one there, sorry about my wobbly hand, that drives the high pressure compressor. The next one drives the intermediate pressure compressor. And these two compressors in the Trent 1000 counter-rotate. It's a three-spool engine. The big turbines at the back responsible for driving the fan. But the principle of the turbofan was dreamt up by FW sometime between 1930 and the end of 1933 when he actually lost interest. Reheat, which we see today, we saw in Concorde and we see with military jets today to augment thrust, he realized that his jet engine would not be particularly good when the aeroplane was traveling slowly at the beginning of its takeoff run. So he dreamt up reheat as a means of augmenting thrust for takeoff. These two are very important ideas in his head and written on paper so long ago. In January 1934, the turbojet patent expired. He expired because when he got a letter in November 1933 warning him that the patent was due, to, due for renewal if he wanted to extend it, and uh, he had to pay money to do so. It just so happens that in the end of 1933, he was exceedingly short of money. He couldn't afford to renew his patent. The Air Ministry wrote him a letter and said, if you want to renew your patent, you'll have to use money from your own pocket. Public funds will not be made available. And so he thought, nobody's taking any interest in my jet engine, so he let it go. He was very busy anyway. He was busy, busy, because after doing a tour as a flying instructor, he then gone on to be a test pilot and had a very exciting career as a test pilot, and then was sent to an engineering school to study engineering with the Royal Air Force, came out with an aggregate of 98%. The end of that, and the RAF were beginning to scratch their heads and wonder what to do with him, so they agreed to send him to Cambridge. Turbojet uh, patent has expired. Frank Whittle goes to Cambridge University as a mature student and I think by then a flight lieutenant in the RAF. Now, he said he could do the Tripos, the three-year three course in two, because of his previous studies with the Royal Air Force. And so they, he was expecting to come out with a good degree after two years. Halfway through his course in May 1935, lo and behold, a letter came in the post. And it was from his old friend, Rolf Williams. And Rolf was now, who'd been an RAF pilot before, and now out of the Air Force as a civilian, had gone into business with another ex-RAF pilot. And these two guys were entrepreneurs. I think they were something to do with cigarette machines, or something like that. And they were prospering. And Will Williams knew all about Frank Whittle's jet engine idea, so he wrote him a letter and said, Oi! Has anybody taken you up on your jet engine yet? Because if not, we think we could raise the funds and do so. So, that rescued the turbojet from oblivion in this country. There's Rolf Williams on the right, the shorter one, Cole Tiddling on the left. 
He was Uncle Willie to me, and he was Uncle Cole to me. Two very nice entrepreneurial gentlemen. Now the turbojet is being rescued. Had it not been for these guys, particularly Rolf Williams, we would have had no turbojet development in the United Kingdom. What would have happened was the Second World War would have broken out in 1939, and at the end of the war, we would have found the Germans flying turbojet-powered airplanes, and we wouldn't have had anything. We would have got hold of the jet engine as part of the spoils of war. So had it not been for Rolf Williams, we were throwing ourselves into obscurity. Well, they formed a company and called it Power Jets. Frank Whittle is very, very busy at Cambridge University because he's trying to do a three-year course in two years. But he lent a hand with preparing drawings and they found a company that would build the engine for them. In 1935, they got somebody to write a report to the Merchant Bank. And this man, a chap called Bramson, wrote a report which was so favorable. He said, basically, this must be done. This jet engine must be done. So the Merchant Bank provided the capital, and they were able to start building the engine. Power Jets Limited. Hmm, sounds good, doesn't it? There were no employees. There was just Uncle Willie and Uncle Cole, and the chairman of the bank, I think, who became chairman of Power Jets, um, Frank Whittle, who was a Royal Air Force employee, he, and he was called Honorary Chief Engineer. The Royal Aircraft Establishment, when the Air Ministry realized that private enterprise was going to build a jet engine, they thought, oh, maybe we should reactivate research at the RAE, where it left off in 1930. So they reactivated research the RAE into the gas turbine. However, the baleful influence of Dr. Arnold Griffith was still present. So he somehow or other said, no, no, it won't be a jet engine, we'll work on a turboprop. So they begin researching the turboprop. Doesn't really matter because the turboprop, turbojet, either way, you're going to get towards what you want to get to anyway. But that's what happened. So the RAE began work again on the back of the fact that power jets had been formed. In 1936 in Germany, there were two turbojet projects underway. The first one started by a young graduate from Göttingen called Hans von Oheim, spelled H-A-I-N, pronounced Heim, Oheim. Von Ohain, a very nice guy, I met him about three times, he came up with his idea of a turbojet engine. It differed a bit from Frank Whittle's idea. He always said, I never saw Frank Whittle's patent, but the patent had been lodged at Göttingen, where he'd been studying for uh, physics and aerodynamics uh, since 1931 or early 1932. So although he won't have seen the patent necessarily and would not know about the Whittle persona, you can bet your bottom dollar that his tutors, particularly Walter Enker and uh, Albert Beetz, who were the turbo 
supercharger experts for Germany, they will have seen the idea of the turbojet and would have been prepared to talk about it. So one assumes that the idea of the turbojet was being kicked around the ballpark in Germany from early 1932 onwards. So von Ohain, as a, a graduate student, comes up with his idea of a turbojet. Herbert Wagner, in 1936, abandoned his ideas for a turboprop and went for turbojet. And his engine was very practical. Von Ohain's engine was not. Von Ohain's engine was doomed to fail. The, von o the, the uh, Herbert Wagner engine was an axial turbojet with considerable promise. Hermann Oestrich worked at the BMW Brahmo company and supervised their tur axial turbojet. And there were other people in Germany also involved. But these were the prime suspects. Frank Whittle's engine formed and in April 1937 was started up for the first time. It started, no trouble at all. The mechanics were around, the engineers, Frank Whittle was there controlling the fuel. He signaled for them to get the motor to bring the thing up to a certain speed and then he switched on the ignition and cracked open the high pressure fuel valve and fed some fuel into this funny looking combustion chamber you can see there and whoom, the engine began and it began to accelerate. We thought, oh dear, this is getting a bit too fast. So he started to close off the fuel valve, but the engine continued to accelerate. It accelerated completely out of control and all the mechanics and engineers disappeared. <laughs> Absolutely vanished. Whittle found himself hanging onto the fuel control valve. There was nobody else around. The engine got to 8,000 RPM. There was a hell of a howling noise. And then, began to slow down, came to a sort of grinding, groaning halt, and everybody reappeared from their hiding places. But they didn't know why or what had happened. Frank Whittle is scratching his head, wondering if he's invented petrol motion or something, because the darn thing seemed to be going, even though he shut off all the fuel supply. Well, that was fairly late on in the day, so the next day they had another go, the darn thing ran away again. What was happening was that fuel, every time they tested the fuel, uh, electric fuel pump, fuel was going bypassing and was collecting down here at the bottom end of the combustion chamber. So, of course, the engine picked up on that fuel and sort of ran itself on that. But anyway, that's the first turbojet engine to run. Okay, it's not a practical proposition for an aeroplane at this point, but this is the first testing of the jet engine. It soon changed and looked like this, which is a really the way it ended up as a flight engine later on in 1941. Things happened very slowly. In 1939, secrecy, official sanction. Yes, and by 1939, they'd overcome the terrible problems they had with combustion. Oh, but at least they'd mostly overcome their problems. Shell had helped them out with a nice combustion chamber and they looked as if they were into a pretty good engine and they were running at 16,000 RPM or something for 20 minutes, half an hour. And then the director of scientific research came along and had a look and he said, good heavens, he said, this jet engine is fantastic. 
this will be wonderful. Aeroplanes will be able to fly at 45,000 feet, 500 miles an hour. Wow, isn't that wonderful? You know, and he was telling Frank, well, Frank Whittle drove him to the station at Rugby, and, uh, and this guy was telling Frank Whittle, you know, what a wonderful idea the jet engine was. And he gets back to the air ministry and says, hey, you know, this jet engine is, we'd better make it secret. So, in June 1939, they made the turbojet secret. I mean, the stable door had been open for years. Germans were foolish. They knew damn well what we were up to. But they made it secret. But of course, now, now, they have to support it. So, the trickle of money comes in from the air ministry. Not a lot, because as you can obviously realize, war is looming on the horizon. The dark clouds of war. Hitler has been in power for quite a few years, and we're busy trying to play catch-up. We're trying to build hurricanes and spitfires and Merlin engines and trying to get the fuel from the United States and all the rest of it. We're very busy. Tanks, airplanes, oh, guns, you name it. So not an awful lot of money was to spare for Frank Whittle and his turbojet. But it at least now is official. And although it's too late, it is secret. The engine looked very like this. We see the director of scientific research and his staff, they agreed that an aeroplane should be built. So they called upon Gloucester Aviation to build an aeroplane. It was designed by their chief designer, George Carter, along with um, one of the other important designers, Richard, and I've forgotten his surname. And uh, they built the aeroplane that you saw at the beginning of the program. And this is called the W-1. The engine, the ramshackle thing you saw before, was called the W-U, the Whittle unit. This is the W-1, which is going to power an aeroplane into the air. They built two of them. So as they built one, they called it the 1X, or experimental, and they ran it all the time, and then modified the pristine W-1. The pristine W-1 will be the one to fly the aeroplane. The W-1X is the one they would experiment with and blah, 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 and they use for tax trials, which they did. In Germany, they'd flown a jet aeroplane in 1939, in August 1939. It was powered by the von Ohain engine, built at Ernst Heinkel's personal expense. Built the aeroplane, had von Ohain designing the engine with a team of engineers in strict secrecy. The engine was a dead-end technology. When the aeroplane flew, the engine could only be operated for six minutes. Then it had to be shut down because it was unsafe to run it any longer. It flew for the first time. The pilot took off turned round to find the aerodrome, couldn't see it because he was flying into the rising sun, eventually found it, landed just in time before his time was up for the running of the engine. That was the first flight, nevertheless, of a turbojet aeroplane. The Germans were, as you well know, developing rockets, turboprops, turbojets, ducted fan pulse jets, and ramjets. Nobody in the world had more enthusiasm for advances in aero propulsion than the Germans. That was the aeroplane that first flew in August 1939, the Heinkel 178. 
it was a bit of a farce. They couldn't stay up for very long, so anyway, it didn't seem to do much good. The air ministry, the German air ministry, didn't take much notice. On the 15th of May, 1941, 75 years ago, first flight of the Gloucester, called the E-28, which means experimental aeroplane number 28, ordered in 1939. It first flew. Flight duration, 17 minutes. Aeroplane landed, pushed it to the hangar, and the doors were locked. It was going to fly the next day. No need to look at the engine. Perfectly bog-standard aeroplane, nice bog-standard engine. Frank Whittle was very pleased, and so were his team. Cleared for 10 hours of flight testing before they had to have a look at the engine and make sure it was okay, which it was. There we are with the E-28-39, sometimes called the Pioneer, and a very good aircraft, and it was it acted as a testbed for many of the other engines that came along afterwards. And you've seen all that. The test pilot, Jerry Sayer, I, I can't remember ever meeting him, but apparently he was a very nice guy who was killed in a flying accident, nothing to do with jet aeroplanes, he was collided with when he was in a typhoon, I think, in 1943, and killed. But a good guy. We sent the W-1 engine to the United States in October 1941, and we founded their turbojet industry with the W-1, why well, actually we sent them the W-1X that I told you about, rather beaten up engine, and you can see it in the Smithsonian, the Air and Space Museum to this day. Um, we sent them that, and we sent them the plans for the next one, the W-2. So the Americans launched into the jet age. The National Academy of Sciences in, German, in America had stated, issued a report in June 1940 in which they said that the gas turbine was wholly unsuitable for aero propulsion. Just shows you how they didn't know how far ahead the Germans and even the British were. The engine became the W2 and we used it to power the first operational jet fighter known as the Meteor. I was looking at a Meteor today at Yeovilton. It's the one that belongs to Martin Baker, ejection seat people. And uh, I used to fly Meteors when I was in the RAF, and I liked the aeroplane very much. We deployed the Meteor against the flying bomb, the V-1, the doodlebug. Uh, but this was too late. This didn't become operational until July 1944, by which time the air war had gone to occupied France and Germany. Our skies were free of Luftwaffe airplanes from April 1944. So we deployed it against the ubiquitous doodlebug, and it was reasonably successful. The Germans had developed a fighter called the Messerschmitt 262. And this had originally gone on the drawing board in 1938. It first flew in 1942. It went operational in 1944 after the British Meteor. The aeroplane had been ready, the airframe had been ready for a long time. The engines became delayed. 
not as many people think because of interference by Adolf Hitler, but because of technical problems with the UMO 004B engine. Um, and it didn't start to come off the supply chain until September 1944. They built over 6,000 of those engines. They built a lot of Messerschmitt 262s. They never had more than 100 supplied to the Luftwaffe, but they never had more than 15 serviceable airplanes at any one time. The engine itself, as Captain Eric Brown used to say, it was an exceedingly difficult piece of kit to handle. Um, it had an axial compressor that was very underdeveloped, but the Germans became desperate. So they pushed their jet airplanes into service long before the Allies would have ever dreamt of doing so. So more Luftwaffe pilots were killed in crashes associated with the unreliability of the engines and the airframe than Allied pilots embarrassed by the presence of the Messerschmitt 262 during its op short operational life of seven months between October 44 and when it was grounded in April 45 due to a lack of fuel. The engines were propelled by petrol rather than kerosene, as were the British engines, so a lot more dangerous from that point of view as well. Rolls-Royce sold their most important engines, the Derwent and the Neen, to the USSR. Because, you see, Clement Attlee, who was the boss in those days, thought Joe Stalin was a jolly good egg. <laughs> And uh, yes, they wanted to have some of our jet engines. Why shouldn't we let them have them? So we did. Rolls-Royce sold them 55 engines. The Americans, who were also in receipt of the Rolls-Royce Derwent and Neen engines, were incandescent with rage when they found out that we stupid British had sold the USSR our best jet engines. Well, now, I saw a MiG-15 flying this afternoon from Yeovilton, and that, as the commentator pointed out, the MiG-15 was powered by the, basically the Rolls-Royce knee, and its airframe was basically German. And it was a jolly good airplane, <laughs> much to our embarrassment in the uh, Korean War. So there you are, you see, we British, we're somewhat inept. <laughs> when it comes to new technology. My father suffered terribly, terribly. He had three nervous breakdowns during the development of the turbojet because of industrial skullduggery and the air ministries fumbling and stuffing around and, and of course, the technical, technological problems as well. So it wasn't too happy. They nationalized power jets in January 1944. In 1946, when Frank Whittle was working on his first big turbofan engine, which should have led us into the world of the turbofan, the government came along and cancelled it all, pulled the rug from underneath their feet, cancelled the new engines, cancelled his turbojet with reheat, which was going to power the M52 supersonic aircraft. That's the turbofan that they cancelled. And that's the proposed Miles 52 supersonic aircraft that Eric Brown was going to fly. Of course, he never did because they cancelled the aeroplane, told George Miles to send all the designs over to the United States, and they demanded that he destroy the jigs. 
to make sure nobody could build one of these airplanes. So the plans went to the United States. And this thing had a fully flying stabilator tailplane enabling it to go supersonic. Ladies and gentlemen, I've given you the beginnings of the jet age. The beginnings. Things that you know about today went on from strength to strength. And so here I am talking to you, and I'm very proud, very proud to do so. Thank you very much for attending.
Um, but Governor gave him an award. He gave all his patent rights to the nation. Because he could see it was going to be a horrible mess. He tried to hang on to patents for himself. So he just gave his patents to the nation and relied upon them to reward him accordingly. They would have tried to get rid of him with little reward. But there's a chap called Dr. Harold Roxley Cox, who was pretty senior medic in government circles. He became Lord King's Norfolk. He ensured that the government gave Frank Little a good reward. He was given £100,000, which doesn't sound much today, but then was a lot of money, and it was a tax-free gift. He immediately gave money away to his, some of his team, but he never complained uh, about that. He's very proud and reached the rank of their commodore. He was given this money, which gave him financial, um, you know, he was free of, of worries about money. So yes, he was rewarded quite well. They got the order of merit, they should. Okay, fantastic. Uh, have we got any more time for remarks? Yes, one, there's one hand up there in the middle. Thank you. Ian, do you think, I think everybody in this room thinks your dad is perhaps the biggest unsung hero of Great Britain. What's your thoughts about that? Um, yes, a lot of people say that. I don't think my thoughts are any, probably any different to yours or anybody else's. You sort of feel, but you know, he was very well recognised and he never complained about that. So I don't think the trouble is today is the Science Museum, the Royal Air Force Museum, which have very poor displays, don't really show. This is the biggest set change in aeronautics since the Wright Brothers, and yet they don't really bother with it. And in some of the museums, Justin uh, doesn't have anything at all, hardly anything. Costas, I've just been up to Costas, and I'm not quite sure, I don't think they've got anything either. This museum tries. And of course, there are some other museums, like the Jeff Hayes Museum in Gloucester, and a few others where you can see things which tell you about it. Um, but we really need to get our science museum, the Royal Air Force Museum, to pull their socks up. There's a marvelous tribute to the Dallas Commentary Aircraft Museum. Oh, yes, the Commentary Aircraft Museum is probably the top of all, where it's based almost entirely on Franklin and Elizabeth Yeah. I think we with who? Tesla. Tesla. The Serbian polymath genius. Yes, indeed, I suppose so. I, I got the first person who suggested that. Although I've heard of Tesla, um, and gosh, yes, but you see, you can go on, can't you, and say, oh, yes, there's so many people who are wonderful mathematicians, and Frankfurt is just wonderful, I suppose. Fantastic, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ian.